0: Love is the call on our lives, and it's a fierce call, a fierce love. And I believe that if we could speak more about that, we could build a revolution that included people of faith and people of no faith. Welcome to
1: Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. The Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis is an author, activist, and public theologian. She is the first female and first Black senior minister to serve in the Progressive Collegiate Church, which dates back to 1628. She's a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and Dr. Lewis and her activism work have been featured by The Today Show, MSNBC, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, among others. She's the creator of the MSNBC online show, Just Faith, and the PBS show, Faith and Justice, in which she has led important conversations about culture and current events. Her new podcast, Love Period, is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Her most recent book, Fierce Love, a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world, was just released this month, November 2021. Raised mostly in Chicago, she now lives with her husband in Manhattan.
2: Reverend Dr. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me today. Cassidy, it's my
0: honor to be here.
2: So, one of the ways I love to begin is kind of asking for your definition of the words contemplation or mysticism, what they mean to you and how you see them lived out in the world today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I, I think I'm a I'm a new convert to contemplation and mysticism. I, I have said so many times in my sermons. Uh, Cassidy, that I'm not a, I'm not the girl of mindfulness, or I'm not the girl of sitting on a mat. But I think my work with uh, Father Richard Rohr and with the Center for Action and Contemplation has just really helped me to think to broaden my definition of what that means. Um, To be mindful, to be mindful of what it's like to have a grape break in your mouth. You know, to be mindful of the feel of your granddaughter's weight on your lap or on your belly, which she likes to climb on. That's her favorite thing to do. Or to be mindful of the way the air feels on your body and and sort of in this non-dualistic way, I would have, I was thinking I'm an extrovert out loud worshiping person, therefore I'm not contemplative. But actually I am contemplative. And I think my definition would be the slowing down of our mind and our heart uh, and our breath to be in touch with the ineffable, to encounter the things that we would rush through and and to uh, turn our awareness to them and let that guide not only the way we you know, meditate, pray, get on our yoga mat, but the way we encounter our relationships, the way we encounter the world.
2: I am so amazed at how much I felt myself slow down in my head and my body when you said the way a grape breaks in your mouth. Right. That one in particular really got me.
0: Right. I I am a, a woman of a certain age. I'm 60-ish. And I've lived my whole life sprinting. I'm I'm honest to say. I've sprinted through my life. And just these days of feel, touch, smell being it's honestly it's urgent for me to downshift Uh, and so I'm really working on it and that grape those big black seedless grapes when your teeth pierce that grape you feel like there is a god right it's so delicious (laughs) so yeah I'm glad that one slowed you down yeah
2: yeah yeah I needed that I needed that and in, in your work as a as a public theologian and this going going going, do you find that this slow this slowing down this contemplation this mindfulness um, informs or enhances your work um, in activism and your work as a public theologian?
0: It it does, and I'm I'm an extrovert off the charts, uh, ENFJ. Everyone is a big letter; it's not like little. And yet, what I'm noticing is. I'm a little slower to jump into the Twitter world right now, a little slower to make my comments about a world event, or a little slower in the way I write to allow myself to be with the thing, with the words, with the thought. And, and this conversation is helping me too, Cassie, just to think like, so what's shifted? And I think writing the book last year was such a slow, contemplative, meditative process, even though we had deadlines every day to set an intention right outside as often as I could or sit in my really big chair by the, right? So there is a new awareness of how much the spirit is moving In the slower space. Does that does that make sense what I'm saying there? So it's not hurry up. It's what is the insight? What is the inspiration? What is the breath saying? And it's changing the way I feel like I need to be first out.
2: Yeah. How have you found yourself? holding that in this world full of urgency, in this world full of, you know, injustices at every turn. And this, this deep desire to speak to it now, to show up to it now, to do something now, how do we hold that tension of urgency? And also there's, there's also that care of self. And there's also that care of community when we care of self and it's, it's tension. How do you hold that?
0: It is. It is tension, and I think just being honest about it. You know, being honest with yourself about the tension, and even I think Cassie, I feel like the word vocation is coming in my brain more. What am I called to do? To say, my friend Mackie Austin, who media trained me a million times before I got it, ever, <laughs> is always asking. Like his prompt for me is, "What's your core message?" And so. I'm asking, what do I uniquely have to offer into the conversation right now? And in a way, if somebody already said that, I could just part that, I could just love that. I could just kind of thank them for that. I don't have to have a comment for everything, but I'm asking myself, how do I talk about love in relation to that? And honestly, Cassidy, a year ago, maybe even six months ago, I felt very much called to sort of them around the people, the anti-vaxxers, the insurrectionists on the six. And in fact, my therapist one time said something to me like, how's that got to do with the love you're preaching? I was like, oh my goodness, that's a really good question. (laughs) So Is there a loving way to describe the vision of a preferred reality? Is there a loving way to call people in, not out? Is there a loving way to say we can be better, we can do better? And just that question makes me go slower, not be as tangy, you know, not be as, you might get more retweets or something if you're tangy, but I really am asking what does love have to do with it? still progressive, still thinking these are injustices, still thinking that we need to do better, still disagreeing with all of that over there, racism and heterosexism and um, sexism and transphobia, all of that, no, I'm not that girl. But can I talk about it in the context of the frame of love, a love revolution, fierce love? That slows down what I write, because I've got to, I'm committed. To write it through the lens of love.
2: So it's I'm really struck by the fact and the way in which this focus on love has such a enduring quality to it. You know, and really like love is the urgent thing.
0: Isn't it? It's the most important
2: thing. Yeah. Could you share a little bit more maybe about the origin story of your new book, Fierce Love, A Bold Path to Ferocious Courage and Rule Breaking Kindness That Can Heal the World?
0: Yeah, thank you, Cassie. Honestly, I've been working on this book for nine years. It came to me the other day that it's been a nine-year gestation (laughs) and then then a nine-year write, you know, nine years to write, or nine months, I'm sorry, Cassie, nine years to gestate, nine months to write. My first questions were, I think, you know, as an African-American woman living in this country and just watching the, you know, the Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Sandy Bland, Ahmad Aubrey, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd—that whole trajectory of not new behaviors, but the ability to see Freddie Gray's, you know, encounter to see. Just right, the seeing of it just—I think—traumatized so many of us. And my brain is always connecting dots, so it's like the violence here that's around race. It's the same kind of violence in Palestine, Israel, around religion and ethnicity. It's the same kind of violence in Ethiopia, right? All of these things are connected to something, and that they were all so based on religion just broke my heart wide open. How how does religion, which, religate to bind us together to connect us, how does religion become such a weapon, causing you know other things? So. I started asking what would it look like to have a grown up God, grown up faith and a grown up God. And I did a lot of writing on that. I did a lot of work on that. I went down that path. And what I realized was that my ambition was beyond God to love. Like if you're not religious, can you do love? If you're agnostic, can you do love? No matter what your faith is, can we talk about love as the ground of our being? Not Nanny Panny love, not codependent love, not love songs, rom-coms love, like really. The kind of love that made Harriet Tubman go back and forth to free people. That made Frederick Douglass a liberator. That made abolition movements happen. The kind of love that made those South African women like sit in the street and like, you know, no men, we're not gonna fight anymore. The kind of love that made Jonathan jump in front of Ruby Sales and save her life. This is fierce love, right? It's courageous love. It's bold love. It's risk taking love. And I think it's at the heart of all the world's major religions. And that's what I want to convert people to love. Fierce love as a way to order our lives. I'm convinced that this fierce call to love and Ubuntu this Zulu concept, I am who I am because you are who you are. Almost like that's our natural religion, right? We know that. We, we, we crawled out of the cave knowing that we had to make a fire together. We had to raise the kids together. We had to hunt and gather together. We had to you know, stand for our tribe together. So can we increase our tribe? Can we increase our feeling of connection? Can we understand that it's not just my kin you're my kin. We're all kin. That we thrive, survive, be well together. I just think that's it. That's the that's the key to a kind of solidarity that can make a difference.
2: Yeah, and in that book, you you speak into the ways that that stories shape us. The stories we're told by others, including our nation. And you write that birth order, gender, religion, sexuality, racial identity, these are just some of the stories that are woven together to make a self. And you note that sometimes these stories are inaccurate or incongruent with our inner lives. And this deep self-love that we also need um, in order to move through those stories towards the truth. And and with what you just said, I'm I'm thinking about how, you know, one of the stories we're often told at the beginning of our lives is that we're on our own and that you know, that this individualistic society that we live in, you know, tells us that we don't need each other and we don't we don't need you know, community or communal care and, and how that really moves us away from what love really is.
0: Yes. Yeah, Cassie, that's right. And, you know, that's a predominant story in our culture, but it's not the predominant story in lots of cultures, you know, and so I think about Nelson Mandela, you know, 28 years in prison and he leans on Ubuntu and says, you know, I came to understand the humanity of my captors. I came to understand the the humanity of the jailers. And if he didn't have that, I mean, he was a lion, right? (laughs) If he had this kind of reconnection with that origin story and, and was able to grow a movement that led to the end of apartheid, which required black and white people to, and colored people and Indian people to collaborate, to break down those walls. King, Dr. King would say, we're bound together, woven together in a garment of humanity. And that's kind of got Gandhi at base. So I'm just thinking about how basic it is, this reliance upon each other's story. And then, you know, Western thought, European thought, comes to America, thought, and we suddenly think of success as how fast can you go up and move away from your house? My friend Shanta is a South Indian woman. And like her family of, you know, I don't know, 90 people, I'm exaggerating slightly, but when they come visit her in New York, everybody camps out in the same place on the couch. It, they would be offended if they were all staying in hotels. So in that culture, community. Um, think about Vietnamese families who immigrated to America and then I bought a store and then you bought a store and we all live in the apartment and we spread out uh, Hispanic cultures, um, African cultures. So we could unlearn that individual story and be thinking instead about who are my people and how can I, how can we together heal the world? Womanists, right? Alice Walker, my cousins are yellow and pink and black and brown and we are all each other's people, Cassie. Yeah. And in that way, do you see,
2: I mean, this this fierce love, you know, while it's a returning and uncovering to the truth of who we are and to what we already know what's in us, do you also see it, you know, in
0: the way that it's
2: countercultural in some aspects now, do you also see it as a form of activism?
0: Absolutely, I think this fierce love, this new story, is activism, and we can see proof of it. We all watched in horror as George Floyd was murdered, and the critical um, mass of people who around the globe responded because we understood that George's death is our death, that like his baby's grief is our grief, and we also understood that we weren't gonna get to the promised land of a peaceful nation without each other. So it is is perhaps evolution, maybe in the human spirit, to lean back into what we knew as infants, that we need each other. We need somebody to raise raise a world together. And how, How do you see or experience,
2: you know, I'm really, I like the way that you're using um, love as this clear connecting point. Because oftentimes it seems like when we get into religious jargon and language, whether it's, you know, of any religion, it seems like we, we can lose a lot of people. We can lose touch with what connects us. It can really turn off people. And so I wonder how, yeah, how have you found a way to talk about this as a connecting piece rather than a separation piece when obviously you experience God in, in this kind of love that you speak of?
0: If I'm honest, I would say that I've been on that journey, that grown up God journey for a long time, almost 10 years. My faith community demands, insists, allows, depending on what day it is. That I speak about God in ways that are universalist. Uh, there's, you know, there's Jews that join the church, you know, Buddhists in the church. So I've had to translate a lot for a long time. We better translate. Our young people care less about some of these stories, especially when they're saying you can't come. I you can't be part of my family, you can't be on my team. And so love, agape, we would say, you and I. Agape, this ubiquitous, powerful, unconditional love directed at ourselves, directed at our people, our neighbors, our strangers, directed to the origin, the source of the holy, is commanded by Jesus for us Christians. He tells the story of a Samaritan who's outsider when he's trying to say this is what love looks like. So he's kind of Breaking the codes, breaking the rules, breaking the norms. The outsider is in. The first is last, right? Young people count. Women count. Actors can come in here and kick it, (laughs) you know? Love is the call on our lives. And it's a fierce call, a fierce love. And I believe that if we could speak more about that, we could build a revolution that included people of faith and people of no faith. Yeah, you reminded me of this
2: in with head and heart when Howard Thurman talks about his vision for the church. And he says, It was my conviction and determination that the church would be a resource for activists. To me, it was important that the individual who was in the thick of the struggle for social change would be able to find renewal and fresh courage in the spiritual resources of the church. There must be provided a place, a moment, when a person could declare, I choose. And I love the way. He's talking about community. It's, it's not about Jesus specific language or anything like that.
0: It's just about community. And, you know, Jesus was not a Christian. Let's all take a breath on that. <laughs> you know, he was not a Christian. He wasn't trying to start a new religion called Christian. He just was trying to invite people on a path. And so um, that's my job as a pastor, is to invite people on a path where Jesus is our rabbi, our itinerant rabbi. And also, Cassie, there are other teachings that augment that from Alice Walker's The Color Purple, which I think should be in the canon, to Letter from a Birmingham Jail, right? To some Octavia Butler you know, story, to James Baldwin, to um, there's so many good words about how to be good in the world that are not explicitly Christian, but that I think belong in the canon called love. Mm, The canon called love, I like that.
2: Another important thing that I really love that you spoke into in your book, Fierce Love, is the importance of space. What's in a space, what's of a space. And I appreciate the way you pointed to this in all areas of life when you wrote, if we don't take care of the space we all share, if we allow it to be filled with the objects of violence and hatred, There will be millions of human beings who don't love themselves sitting together in classrooms or board meetings, standing in line at the grocery store, or competing with one another at job interviews. So how does this notion of space impact the way that we pursue change um, or engage in these movements, maybe now outside of
0: church walls as community? That's That's a good passage you picked there, Cassie. Thank you. (laughs) Um... You know, the, the, the space the space there is both, uh, you know, physical space, because that matters, and also container or world. So there psychologically, I'm talking about object relations. I'm talking about the School of Object Relations, Donna Winnicott being my favorite. But the idea that we are raised in a container, the first container is the womb, your mother's arms, the playpen the classroom, uh, the church, but also the streets. What are the ingredients? What is the characteristic? What's the nature of that space? Children grow in the context of loving space where if you cry, someone's going to come and feed you. If you're wet, someone's going to come and change you. And that Almost leads to a sense of magic. Like, I, look at me, I'm crying, and I brought the bottle. Woohoo! You know, this is great, you know. And you wish every child would have that sense of magic and omnipotence. Like, I can conjure up food when I'm hungry, I can conjure up comfort. So, that space is transitional space. That space is a space of growing and development. And I'm saying, in the streets, police officers and community members and parents and teachers could create safe space for children and adults to play and grow. Zechariah uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. I, In the city, there were old people hanging out with canes and there were children shooting hoops, I'm paraphrasing, but like the streets are safe. Uh, John's vision at Patmos, the streets are so safe, you don't even need streetlights because we make it that way. and We are responsible, we can do that. We can make it that all the children have enough food. All the young, all the adults don't have to choose medication over rent. Everyone um, has enough. We can make it so that race is a pastime paradigm and all of our children grow to love each other. That's what I mean by space. And I mean, you and I and all the people listening have a contribution to make to make good enough space for all of us. Classrooms, streets, subways, you know, highways, good enough space that all of us can thrive. Yeah. Mm.
2: As you were writing this book and you were in those contemplative moments, writing and thinking and, and, and creating this work, what was the hardest part to write what was the part what were the parts where you got stuck maybe in that contemplative space and really had to you know push push something out i guess which is appropriate given the the timeline i guess the 9 months
0: the 9 months yeah i had to push it out i really did i i think it was the hardest chapter to write was the chapter this was the chapter on truth <laughs> I like to tell the truth on truth my mom's death is is pretty Uh, prominently in that chapter and I felt like she was with me as I was writing she's been gone for four years but I felt she visited by but it was hard like I was sob you know it it was hard to write to take myself back to the hospital room to take myself back to blue lights you know the blue cast on her face at night the repartee you know hi hey what are you staring at mom I'm looking at you. You're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. I love you. I love you more. You know, like those, those were both beautiful memories, but also, you know, tear, teary making memories. And how hard it was sometimes, Cassidy, to believe what I'm supposed to believe uh, and preach. The truth is, like I didn't have a resurrection sermon that year. It was hard to get that out. But my congregation really responded to my wrestling, which just proof texts for me how much people yearn for the truth. Not the platitudes, but the truth. I'm struggling, not in a hard time. People yearn for that.
2: You remind me of the story, I don't know if it's Mark 8 or 9, when the, the father says, when Jesus asked the father to believe to heal his son, and the father says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Right, And um, the ways in which God honors honesty and that we can honor each other's honesty too, that um, we're actually closer to the truth through our honesty.
0: And just imagine the world we make if we do not have to mobilize all the false self, all the persona, all the pretend. It's risky, to be honest, but it's so right and good to be honest, feels good to get the truth told in love, you know.
2: Yeah, do you experience or do you see anyone today in your life as, as a mystic, as a whether it's a public mystic or someone who is a contemplative mystic that's kind of undergirding a movement or something like this? Um, do you experience mysticism in the world today?
0: Yeah, I think Richard Rohr Father War is really, and that, and I'm going to say, you know, the new school and now Brian McLaren's helping with that and two young women I know and love, Ashley and Lauren, you know, who did the new school and then did this thing called Widen. So there's like a pulse of beautiful uh, CAC uh, folks who I find to be, Barbara Holmes, you know, find to be doing a really great piece of work. And then somebody like Angel Kyoto Williams. She's so deeply connected uh, to Source and um, her radical Dharma deeply moves me. And I think she's just a unique, a unique voice, an African-American Buddhist sensei voice in the world of contemplation and mysticism. Those are two, those are two places that come to mind right away. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you are the first African-American and first woman to serve as senior minister in the Collegiate Church, which was founded in New York City in 1628.
0: That's right. That was a long time to break that ceiling.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What is your hope for the next 100, next 500 years? I would say of the Collegiate Church, but really the church at large.
0: Yep. That the church would... Really get back to Jesus, not to white, blonde, created European Jesus, not to uh, Constantine Jesus, but to, so not to empire Jesus, but to Mary's boy, Joseph's child, marginalized person, uh, poor, itinerant handyman. Uh, Jesus, who had the most incredible sermons (laughs) from which we can learn. And to get to that, I know the red-letter Christians kind of get to that, but like all of us to get to what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What would Jesus have me do? (laughs) WWJD, what would Jesus do? And to like be liberated, to do that, which would be less about the institution of church, Less about the uh, boundaries and the rules and the who can't and the don't no most. I like to call them the don't no mores. Oh, we've been transformed. We don't smoke no more. We don't cuss no more. You know, just what is it? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your God with everything you have. Now what? Love period. Let's get to that and see what kind of world we can build and who could be included in it. That's my hope.
2: Yeah. And
0: what advice would you give to people
2: who feel like they're in that mode um, of love and yet
0: are tired? Because not everyone else is there yet. I'd say tired is a part of our journey. I write this, uh, I write one chapter about... um joy and that Rumi quote right if you do something from your soul it's a river it's a joy so in that chapter i'm saying you get to tag out you know you get to tag out i'm tired i need a break i need a rest i need some sabbath and let let somebody else do it we can do it cassie and i got you we'll do it we'll do this and then you come back in and i get to take a break and there's just breathing in and out We're not going to get to the promised land tomorrow. It's going to take time for us to make the world better. Um, Our faith is about both our individual transformation and the healing of the world. We have what C.S. Lewis would call God's unbounded now. God's unbounded now to do it. It's, It's Kairos time. So take a breath. Yeah. We need each other. Yeah, we do. And... We got all day, yeah. <laughs> you know, we have all day to 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 recreate the world.
2: Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you were able to make the time and and
0: be able to join me. And yeah, thank you so much. I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Cassie, for great questions and a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get
1: sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-san.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to Enfleshed.com.